everybody. It's great to be back with you here on Dope Nostalgia. Of course, my name is Naomi, and I love being the host of this show. So thank you so much for your listenership. I'm glad that we are starting to get a few people that listen every week and love the show. So please write us. Actually, I was thinking of something cool. I thought you guys maybe had some yearbook photos from the 90s. If you have any of those and you want to snap a picture of them or what, I guess you can just snap a picture of them. Does anyone use scanners anymore? I don't know how you do that now. (laughs) If you have a way of digitalizing your yearbook photo from the 90s, send it to us, say, at dopenostalgiapodcast at gmail.com. And we might feature it on our Instagram or, you know, it'll be really cool. We'll have a little collection of your photos from the 90s. For this episode, I got to speak to an amazing music correspondent, blogger, radio host, publicist, amazing dude, Eric Alper. Now, obviously, originally, when I first started talking with him, I was trying to get a hold of some of the artists for the show. Um, He told me a lot of people that he represents, and we've discussed possibly getting some of them on the show. But then I said, you know what? I want you on the show. I want to talk to you. Because you've had a very um, storied history of working in the music business and you started in the 90s and I want to know all about it. What a fascinating conversation I had with Eric and now I want to tell you a little bit more about his career straight from you know where. Wikipedia Moments. Eric Albert is a Canadian music correspondent, blogger, radio host, and former Director of Media Relations at E1 Music Canada, based in Toronto, Ontario. Eric now runs a music public relations company, That Eric Alper, and is the host of That Eric Alper Show on Sirius XM. Before starting his own PR company, Alper was the Director of Media Relations for E1 Music Canada for 18 years, working with Bob Geldof, Natalie McMaster, Matt Dusk, Randy Bachman, Ringo Starr, Slash, The Wiggles, Snoop Dogg, The Smashing Pumpkins, Ray Charles, Sinead O'Connor, and Sesame Street. Currently, he is a music correspondent to CTV, CBC Radio 2, Rogers, Bell, Shaw Communications, and Evanoff. He is also a regular contributor to Sirius XM, TSN Radio, Dog FM in Ottawa, and CJBK in London, Ontario. Alper has been named to Billboard Magazine, Pace Magazine, and the National Post the best on social media, having become one of the Canada's best-known and in-demand influencers with over 1 million followers on Twitter and his blog, thatericalpert.com, receiving over 125,000 hits a week. Eric Alper is the father of Hannah Alper, a Canadian activist, blogger, and motivational speaker who addresses issues such as the environment, anti-bullying, and social justice. You can definitely check him out on Twitter. As I said, he has a lot of followers and a very entertaining Twitter feed as well. His blog, thatericalper.com. Check it out. And welcome to the show, Eric Alper. Hi. What's How are going you doing on? today? I'm good. How are you? Wonderful. What part of Canada are you in? I'm in Toronto. Okay. I'm out in Edmonton. Yeah. Okay. I'm well, in the- uh- we, we, you beat me in terms of coolness in cities. Um, are you at stage three yet? We are in stage three. Yeah, what's um, that like? Um, it's some sometimes a little bit scary, but actually, yeah. it just went into place that masks will be mandatory in all public places as of Saturday. Yeah, 
you have a really great voice. Thank it's coming you. through so good here. And I like the background. It's very Frankie Goat to Hollywood with the, with the uh, lasers. It, it feels like I can touch the lasers if I, if I do this. Hang on. Bow, bow. <laughs> like, like remember those old, uh, old school? Can you hear me still? Yeah. Yep. You remember those old school Jostens photos you, t- you had? Oh, that's right. That's this right. was one of the backgrounds I remember having. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Let's make sure that we never go back to those times ever again. School photos? Uh, they, school they photos, yeah. yeah. Remember, and like the Sears Portrait Studio, yeah. Right, right, okay. where you take a picture like this, and then you have to take a picture like this. And there'd be a cameo <laughs> in the corner the other <laughs> right. looking at you yeah. all creepily. <laughs> right, right. Look to the future. <sighs> yes. Yeah. Okay, so I remember I was talking to you about the different artists that you represent through email, and yeah. I decided... I'd rather at this point, I wanted to get to know you as a publicist and doing PR and what this line of work is like for you, especially um, in your early days in the 90s. Who have you you represented the longest and what is your current roster of talent like? Um, Who I have represented, uh, I'm going to say probably either 5440 or Andy Kim the longest. Um, Both were signed to uh, a record label called E1. Um, and, uh, when I left to do my own PR company about four years ago this summer, um, they came along with me. So, uh, a lot of artists that I was working and doing PR at the record label for all those years, um, just ended up just continuing with me. So, um, you know, artists like Downchild Blues Band or Bruce Coburn, Buffy St. Marie, um, artists that were signed to True North Record that are still signed to to that label. I'm still doing the the PR for that label. So mm-hmm. probably I'm going to say probably if I have if I have to guess probably Andy Kim. I've worked with him for about 10, 12 years now. That's awesome. Like Andy Kim, um, tell me, get me, correct me if I'm wrong. Is that baby I love you? That's the one. And you already knew that. You just needed an excuse to sing in your beautiful voice. I but didn't that's know the that. one. I <laughs> that was the one that I was thinking of when I related the name to the song in my head. Right. But, um, yeah. He also co-wrote the Archie Sugar Sugar. Um, and then recorded Rock Me Gently and was his own record label for that and his own publisher uh, for Rock Me Gently back in 1974. Then uh, a number of years ago, put out an album called It's Decided and put it out on the uh, Marvelous Arts and Crafts record label that's headed up by Kevin Drew, Broken Social Scene. So um, yeah, so we've been working together for a couple of albums now and worked with him throughout his Canada's Walk of Fame induction and also to the Canadian Music Hall of Fame and the Songwriter Hall of Fame uh, in Canada. So it's been, uh, it's been an amazing ride with him. Now, in, how does the PR business work when you first started and got into the game? You were mentioning it was around the 90s when, when this was uh, the beginning of your career. Do artists come to you or vice versa? Yeah, I, I, I had a, um, I started a record label the day after I graduated university back in, um, I'm going to probably say 1993. Um, I, I made a list of all the things that I can do with my life after graduating from York University. But I also worked at the campus newspaper and the campus radio station. I knew what I wanted to do from the time I was about 12 years old. Um, from the time I was eight, I saw the movie called American Hot Wax. And it told the story of the DJ Alan Freed, who was the first person to really play rock and roll on a regular basis back in the mid-1950s. And when I saw that movie and it had 
um, real life musicians in it, like Jerry Lee Lewis and Chuck Berry. And it told the story of the early stages of rock and roll. When I saw that as an eight year old kid, it was like, that's what I want to do. But I knew I had no musical talent whatsoever and I still don't. So I had to quickly figure out um, over the course of years, how I was going to enter into this world. And this world to me was like how certain people saw Star Wars or Harry Potter or that kind of fictional world of like, just how on earth am I going to be a part of this? And, you know, as a teenager, I realized in getting a subscription to Billboard magazine that there were record labels and there were distributors and there were publicists. And the publicists to me were like the coolest people because they got to share the stories of the musicians, um, but also not really have to worry so much about the profits and losses and who's selling what. They just needed to kind of work with really great people. So when I, when I made the list, um, I started a record label foolishly. Um, and that led to being, um, to having a booking agency because nobody would come and see the artist play in order to buy the record. And then I realized that without publicity, nobody was going to come and see the band's play that I just spent so hard booking. And then I just dropped everything and I became a publicist. So the first little bit, um, I was working a lot of independent artists that had no right to have a publicist. I was mm. cheaper than anybody else. Um, I did it faster than anybody else. Um, and I worked harder and longer hours, um, sending out faxes through the fax machines and following up and literally working at a normal industry nine to five in the basement of my house. Um, and then going out at night and talking to bands that could afford me because I was so cheap. I was like a hundred dollars a month when everybody else was charging a thousand dollars a month, but I needed to make my mistakes. And I needed to screw up a lot in order to continuing to get better. Um, I, I got a job working for a small record label right afterwards. And that was around 95, 96, 97. Um, and I was working and doing PR for uh, the Nylons, which was an acapella band yes. uh, from Canada. Patricia Conroy, who was big in the country world at the time. And they had just signed a small band out of Alberta um, called Nickelback. And Nickelback <laughs> was... Um, they just started making their first EP. So I was working radio and press and television for, for Chad and the guys doing that. And then they went on to, to huge, huge, huge fame and fortune after that. Um, and so we were, I, I was essentially just working those three or four artists or so until I got a call in 1999 from our distributor of those records. So a distributor job was essentially going to move the CDs from the warehouse to the record stores. And that was it. And he had a genius idea of of because all of those labels were american based they didn't really care about canada we were four percent of the world market to them so they were literally going to spend four percent of their day on on the canadian market so he hired me in order to be the canadian publicist for koch um which then led to entertainment one but then that's when i really got to work with um you know, the Smithsonian Folkways record label and Pete Seeger and Jerry Lee Lewis and Ray Charles and Bob Geldof and the Wiggles and Snoop Dogg. And so when working PR in the Canadian market for all these labels, it was wonderful because I got a really great variety rather than working for, say, one record label who only did alternative rock. And that was it. Yeah. Um, and that's where I kind of just started my whole career back in back in the mid 90s. It's got to be an interesting world when you can do all, like, explore all the different genres. Like you said, it's not just one. There's probably a different way about going about doing things in the hip hop world than there is to the rock world. 
Yeah, and yeah. I mean, yeah, it, it was it was amazing being able to work the Wiggles in the morning, Sinead O'Connor in the afternoon, and Guar just before I left, and making sure that the people that were supposed to be getting the Wiggles press release didn't get the Guar press release because I think that that would kind of freak them out. But that's <laughs> but that's where everything kind of clicked for me. It was um, it was so easy for me to do that and to go from one musical style and genre to the next because that's what I was listening to I was listening to everything and I was a fan of everything and I was always positive about stuff I never said I'm you know I never said I don't like that kind of style of music it was always like if I didn't know about it this was my entry point and they were paying me to find out enough information so if we didn't have a world music list for the Putumayo record label um, and working Habib Cote, that was my job to go and find that list. So I would open up a whole new world, not only of like-minded artists, but how to write for that crowd, how to write press releases, how to talk mm-hmm. to that media, because sometimes that was a little bit, you know, how you, how the relaxed atmosphere in talking to a bunch of metalheads who happen to run a blog is much different than talking to a mom of three about the Wiggles. So for me, it wasn't about manipulation or trying to fool anybody. It was just being real and just loving everything that my job encompasses, even back then and still to this day, where you know I can work somebody in the world music style or folk or roots or jazz or classical or rock or metal, um, just switching it up because I think everybody is looking for the same thing. Everybody is looking for a story to write 500 words about or who's really interesting and fun and pleasurable to talk to for 15, 20 minutes during a phoner um, uh, because nobody has time for good music. They only want great music and nobody has time to, you know, for mean people or not nice people. I don't. I'm sure you you don't either. How in this world, I feel like the majority of the music we get on the, if, is through the top 40. Now it's switched. The radio formats have changed, obviously, from terrestrial radio to Sirius XM and different ways of, of getting music to people that way. Um, how, do you, how do you sell a new artist to a public that's waiting for something new? Are they waiting for something new or do they only want to hear what's on the radio? Yeah, I'm not so sure that they want something new all the time. You know, studies have shown... Um, over and over again that playing new music on the radio um, unless your audience expects that and demands that from the local radio station um, they're going to shut it off Um, people don't like you know uh, new music as much as they claim they do when it's somebody that they don't really know it's usually you know it's really something like um, you know, you trust the local radio DJ, you trust the local radio station, you trust the Spotify playlister, you trust the blog, you trust mm-hmm. your family and your friends. And so that kind of gives you that mental capacity to listen to something new or that, you know, and I'm not even going in there where like, you know, Taylor Swift fans don't want to hear the new album Folklore because it's so different. They want that. And they're, they're, they're diving deep into that record. Because but for the her. most part, because it's her and, and her experiences, as much as you may not know about her, you could just go on social media and come along for her ride of, you know, this is my squad. This is me sleeping on a plane. This is my cat. Stream my song. This is, you know, and then reading about her and whatever, if it's like about her relationships or her family or her friends or what she's going through. Um, 
um, you know, she's a very open artist. So you kind of go along with what she's, she's able to do for you. But when I first started, there was obviously, you know, there was very little internet radio. I mean, we barely, you know, even to download a photo took almost three and a half hours. Um, but, (laughs) but you trusted your local radio station and you trusted those music magazines, whether it was CMJ or Q magazine or Mojo or Rolling Stone or spin. Um, and much like we were trusting, you know, pitchfork in the, in the early 2000s. So Mm -hmm. I, I think you still need that entrance point. But for me, um, working a brand new artist, it, it's 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 not even a challenge, or it's tougher, or it's easier. It just is, and so sometimes you have to find those right storylines of people to get really excited about. Because if I think that they're boring with no story, I can guarantee you that the media won't even look at it. You almost have to write your press release or your bio that the first line has to be great because they're not even going to read your second line until that first line is perfect. And it's not, again, it's not about seeing the media as adversaries. They're just as music fans as, as I am and, and have been doing it longer in some cases. And they certainly listen to way more music than, than I have because they're getting 1800 press releases a day from around the world. Um, but it's kind of, it's kind of fun to find those roads for brand new artists. It's fun to look at them and say, well, the music's certainly good, but are you doing something different? Are you, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example. So mm-hmm. during the whole Me Too movement of, of last year, when it was really, really coming to a head, um, it seemed like I had about nine or 10 women artists who all came out really with a song about their feelings or and their emotions and their stories so for me it was a matter of well who's it's not like who's legit because they're all legit but which ones are really going to truly resonate with the media because you can go and you can put your music up on spotify and you can go after your fan base and you are absolutely legitimately um able to tell your story but when you're dealing with uh, another group of people like the media maybe they just covered a story about an artist that had a me too moment when they were in high school or when they were in school so you you got to stay away from that because they've already done that so you look for well who had that moment maybe when they were at work or maybe when they were in the music industry and willing to talk about it um Maybe it was a family member. Maybe it was a really close friend. So you try to find with them and walk through with them the, the objectivity of saying, it's a really great song. Maybe we'll, go, we'll certainly go out to the media because I would never say no to anybody to go out and do a press release. But maybe this won't hit as much as you think because they already covered it last week. So maybe we spend time in this road or maybe we kind of maybe think about and kick around ideas about making a fabulous video instead of maybe spending another three months working this. So for me, it's just a matter of also just giving them um, as much experience as I have and just different options and different opportunities because not everybody is going to get in the media. Um, Spotify is now uploading anywhere between 45 and 50,000 new songs a day. Mm. Uh, and double that on Friday. Not everybody is going to get on a playlist and not everybody's going to get attention, but it's always been like that. True. And I mean, anyone can be on Spotify. Anybody. Anybody. Can. Yeah. Like, I mean, you know, I get those emails of like, Hey, this is my first song. And I listen to it. And it's like, that's great. 
you know, maybe the moment isn't right for you or maybe it's too new, but go out and get 10,000 streams and show that you can make a connection with your fan base first and then show the media that something is happening underneath their noses that they may not know about. Um, you know, but that goes back to that last question too. It's like when you're an artist, um, you know, where do you find those people to that trust you that make you go from zero streams to 10,000. And if commercial radio isn't going to play you and maybe the campus radio and community stations um, are so still viable, but they have less and less audience because they're now listening to online radio. They're now listening to Sirius XM. They're now listening to Stingray. They're now listening to you. And so every moment, that they're not listening to that radio station. They're doing something else that has come up in the last 20 years. There was no Netflix. There were no HBO. There wasn't 900 channels. So when you're an artist, you have to realize that your competition, if you're a rock band, isn't Bruce Springsteen yeah. or isn't Rival Sun. Your competition is Netflix. You know, your competition is going Distractions. Out. Yes, it's going out for the first time in four months during a global <laughs> pandemic, you yeah. know? Um, it, it was it was weird and awesome at the same time. And I probably sound like such a bad person for saying this, but like during when the start of the pandemic hit, I went outside in my backyard and I had a nice scream for about four minutes because I went from 950 tour dates on the schedule to zero. I still had about, you know, 30, 35 artists I was working. Um, but I went back. And I emailed everybody and I said, look, I'm still going to work. I'm still here. Let's ramp up your singles. Let's ramp up the amount of focus tracks that you do. Let's see what, you know, let's see how many videos you can make. And I had artists that were making seven, eight, nine different videos for the one song. Mm -hmm. I have one band that was right in the middle of, 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 um, of recording a three song EP. They got one song finished before the pandemic hit and they've made seven different videos for it once every two weeks. They made a lyric video, an official video, a live video, an acapella video, an instrumental version of it. And then another couple of other goofy kind of videos with them mm -hmm. um, getting photos from the audience. All of that put the spotlight on them, not just by the media, but on their fan base as well. Enough for me to take this brand new band to another level because my press releases were like, this band just hit 200,000 views of the song and look at what they're doing. They're not letting the pandemic stop them. Yes. Because at the end of it all, I think the media were just trying to look at and to see, you know, well, who's going to be devastated by this pandemic and what's going on. And the music industry was absolutely hit, I think, the hardest because they were the first ones to be locked down and they're going to be the last one to kind of open up again. Um, but I was busier than I ever have in my entire life in the last four or five months because I think everybody is just trying to do something new. But doing a, an, a living room show is great when you're one of the first people to do it. When you're the 9,000th artist that day that's going on Facebook, you've got to be really great to separate yourself from the crowd. Mm. Absolutely. It's like, who? I, I feel like, like this has been an opportunity to make lemons out of lemonade and who's able to do it um, the most creatively. But after that, then you're just copying the rest. Yeah. It's like yeah. anything and in the music business. Like you want to be the first <laughs> to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Because number two through nine don't matter at all. Um, but again, like, you know, that's, that's when you're talking about pitching a story to Rolling Stone. You know, there is a, there's a club here in Toronto called the Senator 
and a couple of weeks ago, it's a jazz club, and a couple of weeks ago, they started to do social, uh, safe social distancing shows um, on their balcony. So they have a balcony that goes out onto the street. They blocked up parts of the street. They had chairs and tables that were well apart from one another. Nobody in Canada was doing it. And they ended up on CBC's The National because of that. Now that Toronto is heading into stage three, um, anybody with a balcony is going to do that. Well, you know, it's been done. You can still go after the media, but now you've got to come up with a fresh new angle because they've already written about that. And so, but that's part of, that's part of the music industry in general, just trying to be as safe as possible and looking to the past and saying, everybody needs to sound like Nickelback now or everybody mm. now, you know, I can't, I can't imagine in the boardrooms of, of the major labels of Warner, Sony and Universal, are they telling all of their pop stars, you know, maybe you should do a folk album, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, because it's working because how do you, you know, how do you put out a dance album after something like that and think that you might be doing anything different for all I know, this could be that paradigm shift that we didn't even see coming where the sad, solemn, quieter music starts to hit because that's mostly the music that's being created in a in a global pandemic but mm. even if people listen to this in 2023 long after either we've been taking overtaken by aliens or there's nine tenths of the population has died off or that and then the one tenth went to mars and and one tenth went to mars yeah it, the, the basic idea is still the same is is your songs are your songs and they're great and the music industry is wonderful but it's still the music business. And like any other business, you have to find something that's different. If you're a nail salon in Toronto, you're competing with 9,000 other nail salons. What makes you so amazing? Well, yeah. maybe you have your customer base of the local market or that block, but you want to get into the Toronto Star, you have to be doing something very different to make people go, that's amazing. What would you do as a publicist? Um, going back to something you mentioned earlier about people um, who could be possibly very boring. Um, say they got the greatest voice in the world and yeah. their music is amazing, but their personality is just nothing. It's dust. <laughs> it's dry. What do you do to promote a, a person like that and um, get them to be a good interview? Yeah. Um, there, there, there's a number of things that, that I do with, with, with certain artists like that. The first is I'll try to get as many stories out of them as possible. Tell me about the, Tell me about where the album title comes from. Tell me about the photograph on the album cover. Tell me about this song and this song and this song and this song. And we go through song by song and they write up three to 25 lines about each of the songs just to find that, that nugget. Maybe, maybe they're too close to the record to see some patterns in there that mm -hmm. at the first glance I could see like it's a series of short stories with a linear effect um, throughout it. Um, sometimes you don't put them on television. Um, sometimes you only get them to do email interviews or phoners where they feel more comfortable. Um, you know, there's, there's a number of artists that hate performing through Zoom or through Skype because they just feel like they're, they don't sound correctly. Actually, even before COVID, there's artists that I was working and I still work who refuse to perform on television because they just believe that, um, that the sound quality coming through the TV is disastrous and actually mm. shows them in a, in a worse light and doesn't help them 
when they're trying to sell tickets for a tour. So we don't put them on television. We just get them to maybe have a better interview. Um, but, you know, I, I think for the most part, I think everybody, <laughs> you know, most musicians' worst day ever is better than most people's best day ever. And um, <laughs> it's a matter of, of making sure that they know that they're one of the lucky ones to be able to do what they do and read a lot. You know, I read um, countless dozen or hundreds of blogs and newspaper articles and magazine stories a week. So I'm always looking for, you know, oh, that's, that's fat. Like, why do I like that? And then I hope that other people do too, which is exactly what my Twitter stream really is. It's just stuff I like that other people happen to like it as well. And, and, and I'm able to kind of hopefully transfer those ideas to artists. Um, but sometimes, you know, sometimes it's like when you're in a relationship and they're like, do you love me? And they're like, yes. Like, well, why do you love me? <laughs> sometimes it takes somebody else to answer that question for you. And sometimes that person just happens to be me. Wow. That's a great way to put it. And I was going to say, sometimes you're going to have the opposite extreme where you have someone who's just too much to handle. Um, you're, or you might be spending a lot of time doing damage control. Have you ever had to drop a client because their behavior was just like, I'm sorry, like I can't, I can't represent you. You're just crazy. Yeah. There, <laughs> there, there, there wasn't a single artist in 18 years that I was at Koch and you won that I purposely stopped working because they just happened to be um, a not nice person or that their reputation preceded them. And I think part of that was we were in Canada and they kind of, when artists, when, when artists come to this country, they feel so much more relaxed. There's not mm. paparazzi hanging out of their hotel room. They're, they're not looking, you know, the media here yeah. weren't looking for gotcha moments. They weren't asking really um, prying questions about, well, who are you dating now? Or, yeah. or what about this situation that happened in 1974? We were much more relaxed about everything. Um, and, and I think, you know, we kind of left it up to the American and the UK Fleet Street media to kind of go for those gossipy types. We didn't, and it's kind of strange to see a number of, of sites up here in, uh, in this country and, and through no fault of their own, know full well that their competition as an entertainment show in Toronto is their competition is TMZ. So they kind of have to play the same game for clicks and streams and likes and shares as much as they are too. So you end up with a little, a little bit more snarky stuff. There's been a number of things this year that I'm kind of surprised at that's coming out in the media. Cause I, I think it's not, not that it's not becoming, but I just thought that we were better than that yeah on this when i went independent there's been two artists in particular in four years that i've dropped completely based on it on on an email that they've sent to me and they were just like they kind of used language that um that was very unbecoming and i thought you know i just can't trust you to not say that kind of stuff in the media and mm. you're you're you know you're pick your swear word here um but um, and then the, the other one um, was going to post something and they, they, they met well, but one of them didn't understand why 
they, why the post that they did of all lives matter during the black lives matter movement was offensive and, and and they were good people. And I, and I really think that they came from a perspective of why don't we just care about everybody? And it's like, I get it. I get that's where you're coming from, but I will give you the example of, you know, the singer from the tenors who said that and landed in hot water or people that have lost their jobs over posting something like that. Um, you know, I, 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 I understand that there are different people in the world coming from different backgrounds and sometimes, you know, they may not be as woke as yeah. certain people or certain, you know, and it's a tough world, you know, even if you have 18 followers, if you're still going to post something racist, sexist, homophobic, um, you can go viral very, very quickly if it you're gets into the wrong stream. It's cancels culture. You're literally, totally. you, you cannot make your every tweet you put out there, you have to be very careful about what you do or it could completely ruin your career. Yeah. And, and, and just letting them know that really, when you get down to it, nobody cares about you. You know, yeah. that's a great equalizer of everything is, is where, you know, True. whether you have four followers or whether you have a million or 10 million, nobody really cares what you have to say about this. There's only a handful mm-hmm. of people that can actually move the needle to the world. And as much as I admire artists who do want to stand up against certain politicians or certain times, you know, not every, uh, you know, just because somebody is calling out Bruce Springsteen or calling out the chicks or calling out Ariana Grande or Taylor Swift about not being upfront with who they're going to vote for. It's their personal decision on whether or not, if they want to do that. You're um, kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place because you're going to get called out for not. You're going to get called anything. out either way. Either way, right? You're going to lose half your audience who happens to be, you know, on the other side of the fence with with whatever political stance you're on. Um, But, you know, when you're an independent artist, you kind of want to go after everybody. You don't want to necessarily divide your audience right off the bat unless you are fully prepared to take the heat that that you are going to shoot yourself in the foot in something that may not be required or asked of you. But I also get that this is, we're living in very, very um, different times um, that it's almost like you have to have an opinion and you have to take a stand. And look, I grew up, I grew up in the eighties, waking up at five o'clock in the morning, watching Live Aid and having Bob Geldof and Band-Aid and USA for Africa and Northern Light changed my life about what was expected about an artist. Artists after that movement, had to stand with something, whether it was Greenpeace or Amnesty International or against the government or Sweet Relief Musicians Fund. You have to start to do something good, but don't live in a bubble so much that you don't realize that there are other people out there who are standing very much against with what you're doing and who are always going to call you out for being, you know, socially aware yeah they don't really think that you're so socially aware. They just may think that you're the biggest idiot that walked the planet. Or that you're bandwagoning. Or you're bandwagoning, yeah. And, and then you end up with, like, you know, the whole influencer game of, like, you know, Black Lives Matter, you know, buy my swimsuit, you know, and, and uh-huh. kind of latching on to stuff like that. So, you know, there's been very few times when, when I've dropped somebody, um, and mostly because I, 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 mostly because I can. Because being your own boss and having your own company, you don't have to work with everybody. Um, yeah. You know, you don't have to have those those people just because they're going to pay your bill. I have people that do that. I'm doing fine. I don't need to worry about it. I can spend the next remaining, you know, 
X amount of years of my life in this business, just working with good, kind people that I want to hang out with. Mm. Isn't that a nice way to do things? I would say. <laughs> yeah. You know, you're not at the beginning great. of your career where you're just willing to do any job. Totally. Just like, just totally. like in, in any career path, I guess. Absolutely. And, and, and those are really good lessons to learn because um, sometimes it's telling you what you don't want to do rather than what you should be doing. And, and those are, are easily the most important lessons for me um, in not only doing this um, and having my own company, but the way that I, I run my life and the way that, um, that I work within the family with my wife and daughter, all mm. of that is, is, is based on the things that we don't want to do. You know, when my daughter um, wanted to get into activism at a really early age and, and before she wrote her book at, at 17 years old, a lot of the, the, a, a lot of the companies and influencer campaign that she was getting, um, we turned down way more stuff than what she actually got. And, and part of that was that we didn't have to do everything. We didn't need it to do the money. We didn't care about not having a million followers. So that kind of stuff, whether you want to go into the music industry or whether you want to write, you know, whether you want to work with um, a big corporation, whether you want a job at a law firm that will, you know, defend people you know full well or against the environment, you have a choice to be able to do, you know, the school, you can't blame the school, you can't blame the government, you can't blame society, you still have the ability to run a sweet, happy life. And maybe you don't have four boats. Mm -hmm. Maybe you can go on vacation once a year, but at least you get to go to sleep at night knowing that you did good. Isn't that what's really what matters? And I mean, like, yeah. I, I, I was doing some research about what was going on with you. And I read about your daughter, Hannah, making a lot of positive in the world. It's nice that she can do that from like a pure and true place. Because, yeah, you know, yeah, like, coming from a and when your dad's a publicist, not only not only mm -hmm. do you do you, do you get that affordability of not making you do the things that you don't want to do. Um, yeah. But hopefully, you know, in working with my wife, who who's a pretty who's pretty smart when it comes to this stuff as well. Um, and she does social media for a number of companies, but it's also like, she's just smart. We, we know what the Pratt Falls are. We know what the, what the potential damages could be. And because we see it every day, we not only see it with, with people that have completely screwed up their lives, you know, being mean or, or tweeting or posting horrible things. Um, but you know, you've got to be a parent first. And, and, uh, and I certainly grew up with, with a great family that um, that was full of love and attention, but it was also just continuing to do the right things. And hopefully I'm passing that on um, with my wife over to Hannah. That's beautiful. I'm, I'm glad yeah. to, I'm glad to hear what she's been doing and um, I'm hoping where can people follow um, what she's doing, what Hannah's been yep. up to? Yeah, they can go to callmehanna.ca for her website, or they can just track her online on Twitter and Instagram at that Hannah. Alper. Thank you. After these messages, we'll be right back. Analog Brewing, winner of three awards at the 2020 Alberta Beer Awards, is a proud sponsor of the Dope Nostalgia podcast. Analog Brewing is now offering delivery within the city of Edmonton with no delivery fee on orders over 40 bucks. Go to analogbrewing.ca slash shop. That's www.analogbrewing.ca forward slash shop and place your order today. 
When placing an order, you could also pay it forward and take part in their Nurse a Pint program and prepay for a pint for a nurse. Mention this podcast in the order comments so they know we sent you. Analog Brewing, taking beer to the next level. Saturday mornings are slamming on CBS with Dinky Little Dinosaur. Are you sure? The California Raisins. We're the kings of rock and roll. The Muppet Babies. Now what? Pee-wee's Playhouse. Come on over. And Garfield and Friends. Yeah. Now, how did how did you get started in doing a Sirius XM radio program? Um, the I, I there was um, before your morning, which is the national morning show on CTV. There was a program called Canada AM, and I used to go with all of the artists whenever they were doing interviews and performing on that on that show. And um, I got asked to do. They they just said, hey, you know, you kind of know a lot of the music that's going on and you know a lot of the people in the industry do you want to do a segment on the best box sets of the holiday season so i just called up all my friends who work at the major labels and everybody and i said hey i get to do this segment i've never been on television before i'm not on the radio i'm just a publicist i'm just a guy who just does his thing um but i did well enough on there i talked about the different box set i never slammed anything i didn't say nobody needs this box set it was all like (laughs) here's the really fun stuff and i was always i was always positive about everything um and so that led to more and more segments so whenever somebody died i would come along and go on camera and talk about their lives in four and a half minutes and then i started doing more radio stuff and then when the junos or the grammys came up um I would be called on to to talk about it. But I think partly, A, I was not only a music fan, but I was somebody from the industry that, that gave them a little bit more credibility. But I was also somebody that turned down a lot of things whenever, you know, Justin Bieber got into trouble with his smoking or partying. You know, I always kind of had a little bit of an attitude about, you know, not doing those kind of stories or when somebody en- ended up in legal battle, I wouldn't go there because I didn't want to be the one that said, oh, Eric Alper says this. And I, and I, I didn't want to be that, that person. Um, There's enough of that in the world already. You don't need yeah, to, to participate uh, in it. Yeah, well, right? I mean, not only did I need not to participate in it, but at the time when I was working for Koch and E1, I didn't want it to be E1's Eric Alper thinks that Justin Bieber is getting a bad deal and, and then, mm. you know, going against some legal battle. Um, so I didn't want to tarnish the, the name and the reputation of the company I was working for because yeah. they were so gracious enough to offer me the ability to talk about artists that weren't on their label. Mm-hmm. So I had that going for me as well. Um, I started doing these weekly segments about new music on the Ward and Al show on Sirius XM. Um, and then one day after about a year and a half, the, the director of talk radio said, do you want your own show? And I was like, no, like, why would I want that? Um, and, and I was happy not being responsible for anything. I would come on, I would talk about the things that people want to talk about. And that was it. He said, well, you know, you get to do what you want to do. You go talk to four people a show in an hour um, for 15 minutes, have a light breezy conversation. You, you seem to like people, so go for it. And so I did it and I, and I loved it. I love talking to artists um, not so much about the inside baseballness about what they do, because I don't understand it. I don't care how they got that guitar tone. I have no idea how they did it. And chances are people out there may not know or care about that either. That's for like Guitar Magazine to figure out. I, I just want to 
you know, I want to talk about like what it's like having a number one hit and all of a sudden everybody loves you and then you stop having hits. Like I want to know about mm-hmm. the, you know, your human psych um, on what it's like to write a hit in the, in the comfort, in the seclusion of your own home um, and then find out that everybody loves it or what's the song that, that they thought was going to be a hit and why they think that it wasn't. So a lot of the times it's just about how people got their start, but also mostly, um, mostly hopefully giving giving that conversation that it doesn't matter if you're a fan of that artist, maybe there's something that they can teach you about that as well. You know, much like you and I are talking right here. You know, I talk to some of the biggest artists um, in music and then also, you know, artists that are just starting out that I, that I love that I think, you know, can have a really fun conversation with for 15, 20 minutes a segment and kind of move on to the next one. So I've been doing it now for, for just over five years and, and in some weeks, it's it's the only person I actually talk to over the phone or in person, rather than just I through know. email. Isn't it true? <laughs> this is our this is how we keep in touch now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, like you're in Edmonton, so you know, having the podcast, you either have, you know, you have a couple of choices. You can go after the people that are touring in in your market, and mm-hmm. you know, you would never hear no from me from talking to any of the artists that I have, no matter what city you're in, because I'm just happy anybody wants to talk to artists that I have. But, you know, sometimes when you're in Edmonton or Calgary or or Sudbury, Ontario, you know, it's tough to get people to come to you um, when you're a stopover, where you're a layover of a tour date. Um, and sometimes, you know, you just want to be able to have and start that podcast and say, well, it doesn't matter where you are. I can talk to you whenever you're free. And that's, that's a genius. That's a genius thing about all of this is like, we don't even have to be in the same room, but have that lovely conversation. It's true. I mean, yeah, you could do this from pretty much anywhere now. And um, you also gave me some good advice and that is to make sure that when you do approach the person to want to have that conversation, let's also make sure the focus is on what you're doing now as opposed to the past. Yeah. And, and, you know, and, and I'm glad that you and I had that talk. Cause I'm very glad you, you, you know, cause I, I really? don't normally do that, but I loved, I loved what you were doing so much. And I love the idea and, and I love the way that the, the past shows came across. And, and I was like, you know, if, if there's, uh, because here's the thing, I've been through it, not only as a publicist, but I've been through it with my show too, where I'll get publicists telling me, um, about an artist, actually a lot of artists, I talk to and I love to talk to artists from the 80s and 70s and 90s because mm-hmm. that's the music that I grew up on. So of course yeah. I'm going to be a fan of somebody. Um, and I'll give you examples. So there was, you know, there's a number of artists. Um, if I'm talking to John Anderson from Yes, who has 95 albums to his credit. Mm-hmm. Um, I love 90125 which came out in 1984. It was to me such an amazing album. And I never liked the prog stuff. I never got into Yes. I never got into Early Genesis. I never got into Emerson, Lake and Palmer and 19 minute song. Still don't (laughs) care for it all. Um, But I was told by the publicist, hey, look, don't talk about this. Don't, don't, Don't talk about the past a lot. John loves to talk about what he's doing. Um, and I'm like, awesome, great, happy to do that. So even a guy like me, whatever stature I have on this, on this big planet, I'm still told, hey, look, artists spend a lot of time 
and energy and money creating something that they know is not going to sell as much as when they were selling millions of albums around the world, but it's no less important to them. And it also gives you a little bit of, of a perspective of where they are now and where they're thinking. And sometimes if you get them to talk about stuff, even if you are interviewing Ringo Starr, and I have to tell you, please don't bring up the Beatles. If Ringo brings up the Beatles, it might be a little fair game because then when he says they, you know, oh, you know, when we were, when we were kids, who's we? Are you talking about the Beatles? <laughs> and, then you can, uh, and then you can start, you know, gliding into that. But like everything else, um, you know, people, these musicians are human beings and, and they don't, they never want, <laughs> no matter who it is, no artist wants to believe that they're, that their their best work was behind them and Absolutely. nobody wants to make them feel bad that even though because because at the end of the day the amount of things that have to go right in a for an album release or a film or a tv show or a book or a company the amount of things that have to go right is astounding when you're releasing your album on a major label, there are thousands of people that get to help you out. Promotion, radio, press, publicity, marketing, um, sales, album cover, graphics, liner notes, Spotify people, this person, that person. So many things have to work correctly. It's amazing. Anything works out. There are artists that will go to their deathbed saying and claiming that their newest album was the best work that they've ever put out. And in some cases, I believe them. Maybe they just don't have that team of 10,000 people working on a major label for them, but yeah. it's certainly no less appointment. So when we were having that conversation by email um, about, about a specific artist, it was like, you know, just warm them up. Just ask them one or two questions about the new album. And I'm sure that they're just going to make them feel good because um, you know, we're we're all like that but sometimes it's those little kind of tips and tricks on you know oh you're not just with me because i've sold five million albums back in the 80s and i'm here for your hits it's a kind of two-way street too you know you got to give up something to get something yeah and the thing is, is the whole premise of this show is to see what are you doing now Let's talk about that as well as, you know, I want to gloss over some things that were really exciting and some good memories you had of the glorious days that were the number one hit, whatever it was. Yeah. But I want to know what you're doing now. And that's why I'm contacting you. And I don't want to focus on questions that all the fans that already know the answers to. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. That's a, that's a really good point. You know, you're always going to, try to get new fans out there and you know it's remarkable that even after all of the grammys that billy eilish won this year mm -hmm. her streams and scans and sales still went up the next day and you think who doesn't have this album you know <laughs> or like when adele won like nine grammy awards it was like there are people still out there who don't know who adele is and yes yeah there, there are there are there's you know Far I know, Billy Eilish hasn't sold 320 million albums in America. Um, and so there's always going to be new people who don't know the story about that person's favorite artist. Um, and sometimes they, um, sometimes most of the time, though, they're really, really happy to talk about that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. they, um, they just, you know, 
they're just sometimes really skeptical of people in the media that they may not know or have that relationship with that it's like, oh, they're only talking to me because I know that I can bring them my audience. Mm. And that's true. Absolutely correct. But they also have an audience out there that's looking for new music and who may not know. Um, so it's a little bit of a, of a nice personal relationship with, you know, mm. um, because, you know, everybody is going to ask Noel and Liam Gallagher about their relationship with the brothers. So you can ask that first, but you can definitely ask about the possibility of an Oasis reunion as the last question and knowing full well that that's going to be the headline and they see it coming. Or yeah. if you're in Pink Floyd, they know it's coming down, but they know that you have to ask it in order because that's the job for you too. And you know what? You never know if that's the day that Noel Gallagher is going to say, well, I just got off the phone and yes, there's going to be an Oasis reunion next year. You know, you, you never know. <laughs> Can you imagine how on big your show? <laughs> <laughs> right. Or your show. Let's go get him. Let's call, let's call Noel now. Yeah. Let's get him on the phone. <laughs> What's a concert that changed your life? Um, I saw Genesis in 1981 as an 11 year old boy. And I went with my sister. I was a huge fan of Phil Collins. Um, I love this band. And that was the show still to this day that all shows should be compared to for me. Mm. It was the level of excitement, the, the, the second, first of all, just the anticipation of going to see your favorite band live as a kid is yeah. like nothing matters. Um, and uh, the moments where the lights go down before the artist comes on stage, um, I think is better than some of the sex that I've had in my whole life. And, <laughs> The um, knowing the sights and the sounds of being in a community like that and getting contact high, I'm sure, um, uh. was, was brilliant. And so I, I, I've never forgotten that show. Um, and, and I think that, you know, you never forget your first kind of experiences like that. Mm. Um, but there's been, you know, there have been shows like U2 during the Octung Baby tour that was mind-blowing that you know if i see you know five people on a stage with no lights and no sound and no great graphics i'm kind of bored because i think i've, I've seen a lot of really amazing shows so i think though the, i think the genesis one and the youtube one definitely have to be right up there it's amazing when you can see a show that doesn't ha uh, rely on all the bells and whistles and still be absolutely mind blown at the experience. Yeah. That takes, my, that takes something, some talent. My, <laughs> I didn't see, I didn't see Ed Sheeran when he was here, but my wife did mm -hmm. and just raved about it. And I was like, really, really? And then I saw a bunch of live videos. And it was like, man, this is really good. You know, the, and he didn't even have a band, but you know, it, it, it's when you, you know, the, the up and coming and the newer artists, they, they've got their work cut out for them because a lot of them didn't, they didn't earn their stripes playing from club to club to club across this country. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of them, you know, got their start on social media, whether it's, it's TikTok or Instagram or YouTube, and they, they don't know how to command a stage. They don't know what happens when, um, you know, you look over there and half your audience is bored silly because you're not spending time looking at them or watching them, you know, watch, watch the greats, watch somebody like Elvis Presley in the mid fifties on how he makes it seem like he is looking at every single person on there. Um, and you learn that from practicing and not from yeah. practicing in your own home 
the music that you're creating. It's practicing getting up on stage, playing to two people and a bartender. Yep. You have to. And you have to play to those two people like you're playing to 10,000 people. Yeah, You have to have the sure. same energy. And that's hard to get. To, 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 yeah. Because you feed off how many people are in front of you and the reaction that they're getting. I think like that's, yeah, that's gold. That, that's why when you go back into certain people's history where, you know, I, I, I love reading autobiographies or biographies about musicians and, you know, the first hundred pages of a 200 page autobiography is about their start and their early lives. And then they quickly go through all of the hits. And, and it took me, it, it, and I always thought, well, that's the stuff that people want to read is like the really big stuff when you were untouchable. Um, but I thought, no, that's the early stuff is how you got to be that person. And you have to learn how to suck. You have to mm -hmm. learn how to be bad. You have to learn how to get through it. And failure isn't even an option. It's a must in order to get through it and to be a success because it teaches you that you have to be great, that you don't deserve this. Just because you put your song on Spotify, the hell with you. Nobody cares. But why should we spend time on you? Yeah. When you read about people who saw Springsteen in 1973 or the Rolling Stones in 64 or the Beatles in Germany or Ed Sheeran playing in front of five people in some festival that nobody cared about, there was that indescribable it that people will always say, this band is going to be huge. When I saw Nirvana in 1991, about three weeks before Nevermind came out, I saw them in a club that had about 700 people, 600 people in. Nobody had heard any of Nevermind except for, you know, the people that were only listening to alternative rock and smelled like Teen Spirit, and that you were lucky to live in a city like Toronto that had a new rock station, um, because most cities don't at the yeah. time or didn't at the time um you knew that this band was going to be big you knew that the year that they spent touring bleach and the practice that they took to create nevermind was going to be huge i saw oasis at a small club in their first time coming to toronto and rock and roll star with the very which came out maybe a, maybe a month or two before but you knew that the band was singing to 15 blocks down the road and, and, um, and that kind of stuff. It, I'm not going to say that it happened few and far between. It's just different when I'm seeing a new artist yeah. because I know that they're not really thinking sometimes I want to get good playing live. They're thinking, how do I create great 30 second content for TikTok? And that's oh, okay. Yeah. It's a totally that's all mindset. right. It's what your, it's, it's what your audience expects from you. Um, but sooner or later, that platform is going to go away and you better be really great in order to survive the next platform. Bingo. When you mentioned failure, it made me think of the fact that your things aren't always going to be amazing. You're going to be on social media making posts and the bigger you get, the meaner people can be. Now, yeah. as, a, as a PR, how do you help the artists deal with the fact that people are going to call you names? People are going to make fun of you. They're going to be awful to you. How do you deal with that? Um, I used to, in the beginning, um, whenever somebody was disappointed in the cover that they were getting, um, I would send them what the music critics wrote about Sgt. Pepper. And I would send them what the music critics thought about Billy Joel. And I uh, sent them articles about um, all of the people who didn't like Ed Sheeran 
but then the sheer amount of his numbers and streams um, and say, you know, you're going to get it. You know, not everybody's going to love you. Um, and like certain family members that you don't like, um, there might be people out there who are going to justify not liking you based on something you said or didn't say or think that you did or some ugly photograph that you were that you were in um, and stop reading social media comments. You know, we, yeah. we had, we had a no scrolling rule in our house when Hannah was starting to get a little bit popular and a little bit more outgoing when it came down to the, the social media stuff. We had a no scrolling rule because I knew what people were reading. People were like, your parents should be thrown in jail for, you know, denying that climate change is, is a real thing. Is it a real thing? And like, there were just people who were like, you know, whatever you know you're always going to get those kind of people but it's hard though you yeah. want to be like you want to be liked by everybody but it's and just not possible engage, to hire you want to engage with the people who uh are interesting and, and want to be involved with engaging with you in a positive way but you have to somehow block out all that other garbage and that's yeah that's yeah and it's hard it's hard you you look at you know even a kim kardashian you know who has 135 million followers or however many she has at this time on Instagram, mm -hmm. um, you know, she'll get, you know, 50,000 comp, you know, comments. I would venture to say that 35,000 of them are probably really horrible um, because you, you put the power of social media into most people's hands and they just don't know what to do with it. And most people are mean. I'm not yeah. convinced that this planet and the people that live on it are nice and flowery and happy and, full of yellow and orange stars above their heads. <laughs> Most people have a lot of stuff going on that they don't like. Most people don't like their jobs. Most people don't like the person they're married to. Most people don't like the kind of money that they're making. They don't get to do what they want to do and they're angry. And we see that now with the amount of people who won't wear a mask, you know, <laughs> yeah. we're not, they feel like we're not in this for everybody. And the world is not in this for everybody because the world is made up of everybody that have different experiences and have grown up in different societies and towns and, and rural areas and who have different parents, some racist, some not, some wealthy, some not, some black, some white, some people of color, some not, some gay, some not. And so we can't just say, well, we're all going to, think the same thing um and um you know when when you when you have that when you when you when you start thinking about something like that you you understand that not everybody is going to appreciate your the things that you do um and just don't read it because they're just angry and miserable and they're yeah. not going to buy your album anyway they just happen to have the power and you, you know what really kind of changed it for me because I used to be able to have this idea that like everybody has a right to speak about what they want and everybody does, but it doesn't necessarily mean that everybody needs to hear what you have to say <laughs> yeah. is when, is when newspapers started cutting off the comment section on news on their story because they realized that it was just a giant cesspool yeah. of ignorance and hatred and anger. And if a newspaper was doing that, then I think it was okay to tell artists that they don't have to read the comments either. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I've noticed that it's all articles closed for commenting. And yep. Good. It's better for all of our mental health if we don't have to read that stuff. It is. It is because <laughs> I, I, why, you know, that, and that's exactly it. I mean, you figure that people would love the, having a comment section because it keeps people on their site longer and people want to hate tweet and hate post and other people just want to be. Look, at 11 o'clock at night, when I'm getting ready for bed, I'm like, 
brain, let's go to bed. And then my brain said, you know what we should do? We should read five things on the internet that's going to get us angry. And I'm like, yes, <laughs> let's go do that. And I do that because we're all into car accidents. And sometimes, you know, I, I, I'm just glad that for the greater good of it all, you know, look, this is a rabbit hole that we can go down, but it's there scary. are people, and I'm not one of them, but there are people out there who believe that somebody like Donald Trump didn't actually create the amount of anger and hatred or racist language or, or all of that stuff that it was always bubbling under. And yes, it probably was. But somebody like that actually makes it okay to go out and shout it from the rafters, which causes great grief to everybody. So closing comments off or not reading comments or Instagram allowing comments or Facebook giving you more of those bad comments, knowing that you are going to read them or showing you depressing bad news because you know that you're apt to share that more than happy news. It's a fact, but it doesn't necessarily yeah. mean that for the greater good. We all have to do that, you know? But we used to react to that newspaper article by turning to the person next to us and having a conversation about it, which is going right. to be, when we talk about these things face to face, we're far more kind than we are behind yeah. the keyboard, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. I, I, get, I get comments from, about things on, on my Twitter that I know. I know there's no way that you would say that to somebody's face. But yeah. then again, every day I'll go see a video of somebody screaming and yelling at somebody because they happen to be walking in the park. So maybe there are people out there that don't have, <laughs> you know, that, that wherewithal to shut it down and shut it off. It's true. But, yeah. uh, but it's definitely but, changed. But that's why you exist. And that's why this is so wonderful to talk to. Because yeah. you can let everybody else have that space of, you know, we need to, we need to hate on so much other stuff or, or let's just talk about the really bad stuff. And, and I'm sure you can, I'm sure that, you know, you can go into a whole conversation of failures and misforgivings and things like that. But, you know, I, I think that you chose the road that not only makes people feel really good, but allows you to, um, to like yourself more, knowing that you're not a part of all this you know, stuff that's going on. Now, I read a really interesting fact about uh, your family. Your great-grandfather opened Grossman's Tavern in 1943, which is Toronto's first licensed blues bar. Is it still going to this day? And how, have you been involved with the bar at all? Yeah, um, it's still there. Um, yeah, he was an interesting cat. He was a, a hippie way before hippies were um, and loved music and loved food. So he opened up a cafeteria in Kensington Market in Toronto, which mm. if, if people have been there, it's very much a, a close-knit community spirit. Um, and then he wanted to have musicians play there um, in the mid-1940s and got the alcohol license for that and was one of the first in the country to mix alcohol and music, which mm. the the government thought that it was going to send the whole city into, into destined for hell. And they were almost right. Um, but growing up and hearing stories about um, the draft Dodgers coming and escaping the Vietnam war and coming to Canada, um, he would be housing them in the rooms upstairs above the bar. Um, he would be um, allowing and, and, and uh, doing deals with 
clubs in New Orleans and having artists that were from Canada play there and artists from New Orleans come up in here. So he was a good, he was a great guy all around. He, he not only loved music, but he, he was a real mensch that we would say in the Jewish world. And, um, uh, and I've kind of tried, I mean, if there's one mentor that I would say that I have both business and, and personal, it's him, you know, because I realized that you don't have to be a prat to be in the music industry and you don't have to lie and cheat and steal your way to to surviving forget about you know hitting number one because that's not even that's not even in my mindset um but um yeah the bar is still standing i'm really still I, i'm still really good friends with the owners they took it over um in the mid-1970s uh, i still have artists that play there and uh i still go down every time i'm downtown to stop by and say hi so it's it's a lovely thing to have that that kind of place in your heart and in your memories about the good time that you spent there as a kid, not realizing what it all meant until later on. I'm very happy to hear that the current owners have kept it a live music venue as those are continuously dying off, especially. Now. Yeah. But yeah. Um, yeah, that's very encouraging that they did that. Now, who are your heroes in the business that you'd like to sit down and talk to one day? Um, if you haven't already. Yeah, I'd love to sit down with Paul McCartney and find out about the whole Paul is dead rumor and find <laughs> out how they did all that stuff, like with the with the cover of Abbey Road and the skeleton on the back of Abbey Road and, and all the clues yeah. that they put in. I would love just to find out that stuff. Um, a lot of the people that, that I've met, um, I, I, I've had amazing, amazing times with. I, I uh, you know, somebody like a Bob Geldof who was able to create something from very little and create Live Aid and Band-Aid and, and change the world through music is somebody that, that I've, I've been honored to work with and uh, in the past and sat down with for many, many days, just, just shooting the breeze with him. Um, I, uh, hanging out with Sinead O'Connor was amazing. Um, she, I thought that what she went through and the way that she was treated, not only in the music industry, but the media after she ripped up her, the picture of the Pope was, was something that I think we all, um, those people owe her a big apology for. Um, and she was just so vibrant and happy and, and, and gracious to be around. Um, you know, uh, I, I've just been really lucky that the people that I work with now are, are not just my musical heroes and heroines, but they're, they're people that I grew up listening to that shaped my musical palette, so to speak. You know, uh, every time I'm working with, you know, even a band like Honeymoon Suite, you know, who, uh, who I just marvel at. And I'm like, mm. I, can't, I can't tell you how many hundreds of hours I've watched your videos growing up on much music. So a lot of those artists from the 80s and 90s that, I, that, that I'm happy to work with, people like Biff Naked and Sass Jordan are like, are just so unbelievably cool and hip to this day that, you know, they're, they're just so wonderful to work with and they make my job so much better and so much easier because really without those people, um, my, my job would suck. You know, they're, they're like, I get through the really bad days in order to work with people like that. Oh, yeah. Sass is one of my heroes. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what food or clothing item or toy makes you nostalgic for the nineties? Um, were there any trends that you didn't like? <laughs> no, there wasn't any trend I didn't like, but I got to tell you, I still fit into the pair of jeans and shirts that I wore in the nineties. In fact, I'm wearing uh, what I'm wearing now with this jean jacket I've had for about 25 years already. Um, I still wear the same shirts. I still wear, you know, torn, ripped up jeans. I still nice. look like I stepped out of that Nirvana show at the opera house. 
Ripped jeans to this will day. always be in. Always, my I haven't changed my hairstyle since 1991. I still wear glasses that I bought in the 90s. My whole life is stuck in a time warp, and I don't care. I love it. <laughs> Me too. That's why I created this show. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, do you have any recent um, new artists that you're working with that you want to recommend to the people right now? Yeah. Um, you know, somebody that actually reminds me of Nirvana is uh, Delin Gray. She's managed by Biff Naked and she's a little, um, a little bit of punk, a little bit of pop, a little bit of rock and, and takes no guff from anybody. So I love working with her. Nice. Um, you know, so there's, there's people like that. Then there's people like Jay Douglas, who's, you know, in his mid seventies and still recording really great brilliant reggae music and i'm so happy to be working with him and i'm i'm literally working him for free just because i wanted to mm -hmm. um and um yeah there's you know there there's people um there, there's another group called fresh breath that are i think are doing some amazing things in the folk and the pop world um and they come from from the guelph kitchener waterloo region so yeah you know, there, there's always really great stuff um i post a lot of it on on the website on uh, at that ericalper.com and I always post the 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 artists I'm working with but yeah there's never a dull moment I'm always working with really cool people now for the listeners out there who are interested in the career path of a PR and doing publicity what would you tell them to do to start down that road um, if they want to go into the music industry specifically, you may not want to start there. There's always enough people out there that's looking for really good help um, might be on the cheap. Um, but you want to uh, you want to work as much as you can, just doing what you love to do. So even if they're even if you're in a place that doesn't have a record label, that doesn't have a music festival, that doesn't have a promoter, um, start doing PR for the local animal shelter. Start doing PR for the local restaurant that's in there, uh, that's in the area. Um, it'll teach you how to write different things for different people. It'll teach you how to write a press release. It'll teach you how to write a bio. It'll teach you how to work with the local media. Um, but certainly if you want to just, you know, dive right into the music industry, there are plenty of artists that are out there that can use some good help. And maybe you don't get anything for them in the first little batch. Maybe, you know, their expectations are a little bit high because they're now working with the publicist, no matter who it is. Um, but you just want to keep doing what you're doing and not do something that you don't want to do. I've always said, even in the early beginning, even when I was making no money, at least I'm not bartending or working at a restaurant or doing something that I really have no business doing um, because I have no special talent or urge to do that. So every day that I was doing this was a day that I, I, I won was a day to me personally that I didn't get to to do something that I hated to do. So think outside of the box a little bit. And if you want to get into publicity, there are a lot of people out there that can use a publicist um, that uh, that will garner you the the attention. Um, and because, you know, the music industry is really hard. It's a really tough gig. There's a lot of people who want to get into it. But most fun things are from the outside. There's always, you know, people with degrees in publicity, there's music industry schools, there are literally thousands and thousands of students in this in every in every country that have a degree in music industry, business and administration, and that's your competition for a job. So go create your own. The whole conversation was very insightful and it was a real pleasure to chat with you today, Eric. Thank you oh, for all, I'm so all happy. The yeah. Thank you. For oh, Naomi, you're awesome. I love that. I love talking to you. And yeah, any anytime you want to talk, I'll be here for you. Absolutely. Let's do this again sometime. 
Perfect. Excellent. Thanks so much. All right. And you have a wonderful day. Okay. See ya. Bye. <laughs> Bye. It was a blast talking with Eric, and I'm very grateful that he spent the time to be on the show. So thank you once again, Eric Alfer. Next week's show, my special guest will be from the freestyle Latin pop amazing girl group, sweet sensation, Betty D. She's going to be joining me, and we're going to be talking about girl power and so much more. So stick around, keep listening to us, and follow Colin's instructions and check out our social media. Have a good one. Social media, yeah, we've got it. Send us an email, dopenostalgiapodcast at gmail.com. Twitter, Nostalgia Dope. Or on Insta, dope underscore nostalgia. This podcast is licensed by SoCan because we believe that artists should be paid for their work. Hey, everybody, this is Quinn. And Charlie. And Naomi. We got a podcast together. What's it called? L2L. That stands for learning to listen because we talk about all kinds of stuff. What do we talk about? Sex. Muppets. Serial killers. Poop. Yeah, you got to be ready for some poop talk if you're going to listen to Learning to Listen. It's healthy. Hey, you can join in the conversation as well. Uh, You can find us where? Stitcher. Spotify. iTunes. Yeah, you can find us anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Every Tuesday, you can join us and uh, learn to listen. Join us for a little L2L. Yeah, put it in your ear holes. Yeah.